know, if that was her, if that was her upbringing, and then all of a sudden this union happens in Georgetown, poor thing. She gets shuttled off to a home for unwed mother that I've also researched, and it just looks almost slave-like. Yeah. So yeah, I have a whole lot more empathy and compassion, and I just really feel sorry for for the fact that she had such a societal burden to bear. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and on today's show is Anne. She lives in West Virginia. Recalling her early family life, she said she felt like her parents were sucked into feeling like they had to have a family. And while they were focused on creating a better world in their professional lives, that didn't necessarily translate into their home life. Anne sought out her birth mother, but found her maternal grandmother instead. The woman's receptivity to Anne's return seemed to be a good sign, but ended with secondary rejection. There has only been one cousin who has accepted Anne into her life, and that's because she's distanced herself from the family too. This is Anne's journey. Anne said she learned she was adopted when she was four years old. Her friend Jenny was at her house when Anne's mother decided to tell her that she was adopted, but Jenny was not. Anne's mom neglected to clearly explain that Anne was not born from her own womb, so Anne thought that her mother was saying the reverse was true. She thought Jenny was not born from her mother's womb. Anne and her sister, also an adoptee who is a year and a half younger than herself, discovered what it meant together. Their family moved overseas to Brazil, where they got a reality check on the coarse openness with which people inquired about their adoptions. The expatriate community was much smaller and sort of more in your face. And when we told people we were adopted, it was, it was always met with, well, who is your real family? Who's your real mother? And so after a couple of years of dodging that and feeling kind of inferior about our adoption, we made a pact, my sister and I, that we just wouldn't tell anybody anymore that we were adopted because we didn't like, we didn't like the question. Anne describes her family as socially committed and one that presented great educational experiences and provided for them financially and intellectually in every way, but they could have been better about providing emotional support. Anne said she feels like when she and her sister were adopted in the 1950s, societal norms dictated that a couple should have children and be a family, but she's not sure they wanted to be parents. They were very concerned about making the world a better place through their work in the foreign service and social work, but that didn't necessarily translate into making a strong family. When I asked Anne what she meant by that, she recalled a story from when she was 16 and her sister was 15, and her sister had gotten pregnant. And the first reaction from my mother was, who have you told? And my father's first reaction was, how often does this sort of thing happen and who knows? So it was, um, <laughs> so it was not, it was, it was about the, the exterior. It was about the perception in the community, not about the welfare of your sister. Exactly. Right. So mm -hmm. I ended up being the one that cared for her during her decision making. 
So what was that like then for you to sort of see them witness their daughter be pregnant, not really provide any emotional support and be completely about what the community was like? Like, what did your how did you feel about your parents at that time? Well, I, I felt then and frequently through my upbringing that they cared more about what what people thought rather than who we were. I don't think that they were prepared as people to really understand and cherish who who we were in our specialness or differentness. I got you. And how were you guys special and different? Well, I, um, my... My younger sister is no longer alive. She succumbed to drug abuse very early on and really never kicked it. But as how was she special? She was she had a, an amazing sense of humor and amazing um, ability to sort of see BS um, before anybody else did. <laughs> if I may, did her drug abuse come from the time after her pregnancy, or do you, do you get the impression that she was already down that path i think ninth grade for her was uh was a was a very important turning year into a very dark future and was that the time that she was pregnant yeah i see yeah how were you then if you were the caregiver and your your sister is on a path towards abuse what what was your sort of social situation and your level of responsibility tell me about you as a kid well um, until that that same year, I was kind of considered the bad kid because I was the one who acted out, the one who, as my father said, I ran away from home as soon as I learned to walk. <laughs> and uh, I was the one who questioned. I was the one who was, you know, always getting lost. But at that point, that year, we switched, and I became the, the good student, and she became the bad student. And I became um, sort of, in my opinion, the truth teller. Uh, but it was not accepted. So when I found the drugs, um, for example, one time in her room and I shared them with my parents, I was the one who was reprimanded for snooping and she was the one who got off with an excuse about uh, a diabetic friend. Wow, really? So they enabled her from early? Yeah, yeah. Fast forwarding to adulthood, Anne said her sister moved in with their mother, but it was clear her sister was taking advantage of their mother. Anne documented the depletion of her mother's bank account, and there were strangers coming to the front door, one of them wielding a gun. Anne was forced to take over guardianship of their mother and kicked her sister out. At one point, uh, when when this was happening, my sister basically said to me, whatever happened to unconditional love? I think for her, um, supporting her behavior was all about, was it was a test of love because she never really felt the love she needed, I think. Sometimes that happens. People push and push to try to find the boundary for where their loved ones won't love them anymore, at least love as they've defined it. Given what she had been through with her sister and her own adoption, Anne decided at 18 years old to dedicate her life to reproductive rights, family planning, and had a multi-decade career in public health. And was that a direct result of her pregnancy? Well, I think it's a result of that, and I think it also is goes back to my adoption. My my birth mother had no choices, and I have always thought it was interesting when people say, "Well, I wouldn't have been born," and I'm like, "You know, does that really matter in the big scheme of things?" It's really the option is um, 
is, is if you want to have a child or not. And I said, I think that my adoption really has shaped my whole professional and personal outlook. That's an interesting piece there. I was taught there's a, a woman whom I interviewed previously named Rebecca. And I've spoken with her a couple of times online. And I was I was mistakenly making making points about the choice between adoption and abortion. And she pointed out to me that those are not the same thing, right? That they should not be compared or talked about in the same sentence because one is choosing life over termination of the child. That's one choice. And then the next choice after you've decided not to terminate the child is, am I going to keep this child or will this child be placed into adoption, right? So they're two completely separate decision trees. And yeah. I was really glad she pointed that out because I hadn't thought about it that way before. Um, but I think it's an important distinction for people to make so that they don't unnecessarily sort of lump those two humongous decisions into one big decision. Yeah, I agree. So for lack of better words, Anne turned into the quote unquote good kid at the same time that her sister took on the opposing role. Anne said she was also struggling at that time, and for reasons she didn't understand, she turned her angst and energy into performing well in school. She turned around from being a C student to being an A student in the course of one semester. A minute ago, Anne said her father told her that she's been running away since she learned to walk. I asked her why he would say that. Well, I always, since I can remember, had a best friend who had a loving family. And um, my my best girlfriend and my boyfriend, and then later my husband, uh, former husband now, but uh, has an amazing family. And so I think I always gravitated towards um, families that were emotionally expressive and honest and loving and fun. And that wasn't mine. Discussing Anne's urge to search, she said she's always known a little bit of her story. Her adoption was private, her parents had met her birth mother, and her adopted mother had given Anne a tiny bit of information about her birth mother and her circumstances. One fact she knew was that her parents paid for her birth mother's passage from the home for unwed mothers back to her hometown in Pennsylvania. In her early 20s, Anne was driving through her birth mother's town, so she pulled over to a phone booth, opened the phone book, and tore out every page that had a variation of the spelling of her birth mother's last name. She carried those pages around for years until 1981, when she decided she was going to try to make contact. There's 200 uh, names with three or four different spellings. And I just looked at one, picked it, and called it, and got it. Are you kidding I nailed me? nailed it first time. Nailed it first time? And that's and astonishing. I wasn't prepared for that. So, you know, <laughs> what came out of my mouth was not planned. And I, the woman picks up the phone and I say, I'm looking for this, this person. She's probably around 48. And do you know anybody? She's a friend of my mother's is what came out of my mouth without a lot of, without any planning. And the woman said, well, my daughter is named that, but she's only 47. And I'm like, oh my, holy cow, I got it. Well, we talked for about... 10 minutes, and then um, we hung up, and then I called back about a week later, and I said, I, I know you know I exist because you had to pick 
uh, your daughter up at the train when I was after I was born. I am I am that person. And so my birth grandmother and I, and she said, I had a feeling it was you. It was very, very moving. Wow. So for the next 45 minutes, my birth grandmother and I uh, chatted and got to know each other. And she was just very welcoming and said, does your hair hold a curl? You know, do you, are your teeth weak? Are your nails weak? <laughs> we, <laughs> we talked about physical things like that. And it was just really uh, valuable to me. So she says, well, I have, I think I have 17 grandkids. Well, I guess now I have 18. Oh. So it was, it was a lovely call. And I said, I would like to meet my birth mother. And she said, well, let me call her and uh, let me see what she says. Call me back at such and such a day and time. And so I did. Um, and she said, my birth mother, who now lives in Kentucky and was married um, and had three children, had visited her priest discussed this request of mine and it had been decided between the priest and my birth mother that the that she did not want to meet. Anne said she could tell that her biological grandmother was disappointed that her daughter didn't want to meet her, but she understood why she supported and protected her own daughter. Anne tried to let it all go and she broke contact with her maternal grandmother. But knowing someone you're related to is out there but they don't want to meet you is very challenging to just forget. She said a decade later, she was flying through her birth mother's town in Kentucky, and she went to the phone book again, tore out the pages for her mother's married name, and carried those pages around. Years later, Anne is traveling through Chicago when the urge hit her to really make something happen. When she disembarked the plane, she rented a car and drove to Kentucky. Without a map, I found myself in this town in Kentucky in front of a Catholic church. And I thought, I bet, I wonder if there's information here. So I went into the Catholic Church and said, I'd like to speak to the priest. And I'm, I'm not religious, so I don't do this sort of thing normally. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the priest came out, and I said, I'm looking for this person. Any chance you know her? And he said, he waited a minute, and he said, as a matter of fact, her three children went to school here. So... Uh, I thought, wow, once again, I kind of nailed this with no, with complete intuition. So he talked to me for a while and, and talked to me about her, what she was like. And I said, by any chance, do you have any yearbooks? He says, no, I don't keep yearbooks. And he said, but I do have a couple. Let me go see. So he goes to the, his bookshelf and pulls out two yearbooks. And lo and behold, those two yearbooks had pictures of all three of my half-siblings. Wow. So I asked for photocopy. I took photocopies of those. I guess it's sort of <laughs> shocking from a distance, but it was always, so up, until very recently, I knew um, their names and um, that they existed and that they probably didn't know about me. Going back just a little bit, you already know that Anne's sister passed away, but her mother has also since passed on, and her father died in 2017. She also retired recently, so with the extra time and energy, she really dug into her search. Anne got DNA tests with 23andMe and Ancestry DNA, where she quickly found first cousins. She turned the search to Facebook, where she found her half-siblings and their cousins. And I messaged several of them, and nobody answered me back. Um, so it, was, it started to become clear to me that they were purposely not answering me. Anne decided to go the official route to contact the post-adoption counselor in Virginia, where she was born. 
The counselor was really supportive and helpful, pledging to do what she could, but... She didn't have the married name. I said, well, this is the married name, this is her address, and in fact, here's her phone number. Wow. Um, so she said, uh, I'm not going to charge you for this because you've done all the work, but I will, I'll do the contact. The counselor reached out, returning to Anne with this. Your birth mother says, stop trying to contact her, stop trying to contact her family, get on with your own life, essentially cease and desist. Wow. So that was heartbreaking. Oh, man. Yeah. And so that weekend was a rough weekend. What and did you do? And then Tuesday, well, I just I wallowed. I, did, I decided to give myself a weekend to wallow and, and just lean into the sadness. Um, what did you think to yourself? Oh, uh, like, um, how many times can you get rejected? <laughs> it yeah. just keeps happening. On the Tuesday after her weekend of wallowing, Anne logs into Ancestry, where she has a connection request from a first cousin. She called the post-adoption counselor to ask what the heck to do. Anne's relatives had ignored her, and her birth mother explicitly asked her to stay away, and Anne wanted to respect that. But this person was reaching out to her, so she decided to respond. And we talked. It was amazing. We talked for an hour and a half that first night. Wow. And she, she said essentially that the family, she was not close to the family. And so she was very comfortable um, having a communication with me and not feeling like we were breaking any kind of, any kind of uh, promises. Anne said she and her cousin were in contact every few days after their initial phone call, and she's enthralled with the new relationship. Getting to know one another, they discovered they liked the same books and shows, they're both avid Scrabble players, and it's just been cool to find things in common that could be genetic. Anne says after all of the rejection, having someone in the family reach out to her has put her on cloud nine. But I couldn't help wondering why this one cousin was the only person to break from the family and reach out. It's interesting that the family has turned their back to you. Has she given you any indication as to why she's not close with the family? And do you feel, I'm just wondering if it's well, a similar, there's a similarity between why she's not close with them and why they might be rejecting you. Like, I just, I feel like there's uh, something there. There is something there, and I hope to get deeper into it when we meet. But my my initial sense is that she had, cancer. Uh, she's recovered, thank goodness. And apparently none of them were helpful to her during that time. So she feels, she felt abandoned. Now, when Anne's parents met her birth mother when she was born, the woman said absolutely nothing about her birth father. There was no information in the files about him, and her maternal grandmother didn't know anything about who he might be either. Randomly, one day on Ancestry DNA, a match pops up. And this person and Anne have a lot of centimorgans in common. Anne messaged the woman to see if she was interested in learning more about how they were related, and the woman agreed. We found out, since she's only two years younger than I, that with this level of genetic overlap, she was my half-sister on my father's side. Wow. Yeah. So once I knew, and she had put a tree on a public tree that, that then gave his name. I was like, holy cow, now I have a name, a full name. And so I did the, you know, what we all do, the obituary searches and the find a grave searches and the whatnot. And I was able to very quickly put together a very, pretty large family tree on my father's side. Mm -hmm. And 
discovered that, in fact, there was a, a wife and four children before I was conceived and um, also found a divorce decree for that first marriage that, and that, that was signed three months after I was born. So, mm. <laughs> you know, you can make up all sorts of stories on that one. Yeah. Um, and then my, the half-sister I found um, was born after me. So clearly uh, <laughs> he was a busy man. Um, <laughs> yeah. She was very open for about a moment. And then um, when I asked her a bunch of granted, you know, the, the manual on how to do these reunions or whatever is not written. So I, I, I did it wrong. I asked 500 questions in the first email and she never answered back. Mm. So I then realized I goofed and said, I, I, I'm sorry for the, the fire hose of questions. I just have, I'm like a, a starved person at a banquet and I, I'm sorry. And so I never heard back from her. Wishing she could have it all to do over again. Anne turned to Facebook to see if she could learn more about her paternal side. Unfortunately, her birth father is deceased, so she could only learn more about her paternal siblings. There were four children, so Anne decided to contact one of them. She basically said, I have no reason to know you. And I, I said, well, of course you don't. You don't know me. Why? <laughs> right. Um, so I said, but if you're willing, I'd like to have some, some health information. So she said, I'm happy to give you health information, and pretty much that's it. So she, she did, and she was very help, very thorough. And, and for, for us adoptees who are always bemoaning the fact that we have no health information, now I realize that's probably, in some cases, a blessing. <laughs> oh, really? Because <laughs> now I realize there's all, all these things that i got to worry about, and I was just blissfully ignorant and fine before that. Yeah. She... He also has decided to not communicate with me. Mm. So I have two rejections on the father's side. Father is dead, so I can't reach out to him. Once I had his name, I found his brother's obituary, and then I found his. And the again, one of the other little fun coincidences is that the two brothers were musicians in Washington, D.C., and owned a bar that I had been in in the early 70s. Really? Is and, that right? Yeah. Thinking back on this news that her birth father was a bar owner and a talented musician who was probably charming and handsome, Anne began to feel sorry for her birth mother, a devout Catholic bookkeeper who may have found herself in his bar one night. At least, that's the narrative Anne's created in her mind. But it's interesting, when we adoptees finally get a little bit of information about our birth parents, we're better able to empathize with their circumstances preceding our conception. And and I agreed. It's a powerful moment when that empathy hits you. Yeah. Another really powerful moment was when I went to the yearbook and found her, her senior yearbook from a Catholic school in Pennsylvania. And I have to just say that was a really eye-opening and, frankly, spooky yearbook. How so? With all these very hard-looking, very admonishing-looking nuns with their habits and their black and white photos and there was one photo with the bride of christ you know a young woman in a bride's outfit a bride's bridal gown and it was just a very somber catholic heavy scene and there she is my birth mother 
so you know if that was her if that was her upbringing and then all of a sudden these union happens in Georgetown what thing she gets shuttled off to a home for unwed mother that I've also researched and it just looks almost slave like yeah so yeah I have a whole lot more empathy and compassion and I just really feel sorry for for the fact that she had such a societal burden up there. At the time of our interview, I was reading Anne Fessler's book, The Girls Who Went Away. So the impact of reading women's stories put me in a place of even deeper empathy for every birth mother, not just my own. I wondered if Anne, my guest, felt like expressing her empathy to her birth mother, and I asked how she was doing these days given the outcome of her search. I doubt I'll ever meet my birth mother now, but if I were to, I would just say, I am so sorry for the society that you found yourself in, and it must have just been horribly lonely and heartbreaking. Would you ever write her a letter to just say that, even though she's asked you not to be, just to express your sorrow for her situation and how you came into the world? I'm afraid to, because um, I don't want to, to blow her cover. I understand. Her husband's alive and they live together and I wouldn't want to affect that. I understand. Wow. So how are you doing? You've you've had a lot of rejections. I mean, you've had some good connections, but few. How are you doing? Um, I'm I I'm high, I think I'm pretty highly self-aware, so I work I work hard at making sure that I make good decisions and um you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm happy. I have two amazing children. From from whenever early on, I was absolutely committed to making sure I had children and that I was going to do a good job at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'm very proud. It's the thing I'm most proud of in my life that I have two amazing adult daughters who are happy and healthy and funny and <laughs> and and a joy. That's me awesome. and many others. So I, I, I was very conscious as I was raising them of making sure that they knew they were wanted and amazing individuals and appreciated for whatever differences they had and sort of trying to undo my own suffering. Undo your own suffering by being the most amazing parent you possibly could. Yes. Yeah. Modesty aside. <laughs> as our conversation wound down, I realized I hadn't asked Anne about her feelings when she found her birth father's obituary online. It was a mixture of emotions. Um, one was, wow, this is, this is a closed chapter. I'll never be able to open it. But it was uh, the, another feeling was, okay, this is real. This person existed. Now, I don't know, you know, it's clearly over the, the ability to meet him, but... Um, but that's proof that there he was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coincidentally or whatever, this weekend when I was going to this festival, I stopped. And now I know where everybody grew up and whatnot. So I, I stopped through the town that he grew up in, went to his old school, and <laughs> found a picture of him in the old school where he was a champion boxer. And I found a little trophy mm-hmm. in the in the little glass case there in the school that had his name on it from 1942. So, yeah, he existed, and um, and then I went to the local grave and took a bunch of pictures of, of with with the family name, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna upload those into Find a Grave so that others can have access to the 
to the, the, the ones that I found. That's pretty cool. So I'm starting to get back. That's cool. And that's good that you're in a position to sort of offer pieces that you've found for others to see, regardless of how you've been treated and the results that you've found, you know, you can still be a contributor to your own children's history and their children's, right? Yeah. That's yeah. great. Well, Anne, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know this has been really difficult, but you know, I'm hopeful that the meeting in New England is going to be really cool. It sounds like it's been a fulfilling relationship already, and I hope that it will continue to be that because you've done so much to find these people and and to not be able to make any connections is really hard. So to at least get one that is going to be really fulfilling is going to be really amazing. So I wish you guys the best of luck in your meeting. Thank you very much. And thank you again for, for all you're doing for the adoptees. Oh, it's my pleasure. It really is. Take care. All the best. Thank you so much for calling today. Thank you, Dave. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's me. I always find it hard to hear that an entire family has turned their back on an adoptee at the decree of one person. We're not ogres who live in the hills who should be avoided at all costs. We're people with feelings, and we just want to have a connection to the bloodlines we've never known, regardless of the family's history. Of course, on the other side of the coin, it always warms my heart when I hear that someone has made a special connection to another person who's willing to know them, and Anne found that with her cousin Beth. I checked back with Anne to see how her meeting with Beth went in September. She replied with this. My first cousin Beth and I met in Maine for a few days in September. We got along well and for whatever reasons, genetic, chemistry or luck, I felt connected to her. We got to know each other over walks along the oceans, meals, watching Jeopardy and playing Scrabble, a game we both love. She actually posted a picture of us on Facebook saying she was with her cousin Anne and sorry it took so long to connect. We will see if other family members track her on Facebook. This story is far from over. Regardless, I have a feeling Beth and I will remain in touch over the long term. I'm Damon Davis and I hope you'll find something in Anne's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I, really? If you would like to share your adoption journey and your attempt to connect with your biological family, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can choose to share your whole story, maintain some privacy about parts of your journey, or share completely anonymously. You can find the show at facebook.com slash really or follow me on Twitter, at WAI Really. And please, if you like the show, you can support me at patreon.com slash WAI Really. You can subscribe to Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, it would mean so much to me if you would take a moment to share a rating or leave a comment. Those ratings can help others to find the podcast too.